let's get into the Bible now. We're going to open up to the book of Matthew as we've been studying Matthew, but we're actually going to go to chapter 18 this morning. Chapter 18. I know that we've been in chapter 6, but we're just going to skip those 12 chapters in between. They're no big deal, so that's a joke, obviously. Uh, we are talking about forgiving others, right? Last week, uh, Dominic Valley spoke to us about forgiving others, and he said that that was part one. So now I am doing part two of that, and we'll use a little story from Matthew 18 to kind of speak to and around that idea of forgiving others. We'll read the text that we're thinking about today in Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. It says, Then Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I don't say to you up to seven, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. But since he didn't have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me. I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and began to beg him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. He was unwilling, however, but went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning, 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 doing that with him, His Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave all the debt because you begged me. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. so shall my heavenly Father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I doubt that there's a one of us in here who isn't deeply challenged, maybe even shaken, by what your word says to us today. This thing of forgiveness that you have extended to us and asked us to extend to others that we so often refuse to 
do so this thing. It's obvious, Lord, in our own hearts and in the text that we need great help in the area of forgiving others. I need great help in the area of forgiving others. So we thank you that your word speaks to these deep places of our hearts, challenges us at the very places of our pain and our selfishness and our own wills, our pasts and our present. Thank you, God, for your word. Would you give us grace today? The word's pretty clear. I don't really have to preach much, Lord, but I think what we need is real grace to hear it, to receive it, to believe it, to obey it. In the places where we feel offended, we need real grace. So, Lord, give me grace now in my preaching. Give us grace in our hearing. And give us together grace as we move forward in forgiveness. We ask these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we find ourselves in this place of speaking about forgiving others because of the one line that we read in the Lord's Prayer when we studied the Lord's Prayer a couple weeks ago, where Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So we spoke about that briefly a couple weeks ago, and then it's the only line in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus comments on. So we said, well, take a Oh, Lord, help me. Sheesh. So we'll take a little time and, and talk about it. And so Dominic started last week, and last week was excellent. I listened to that sermon. I watched that sermon. I gleaned much from it. Um, quite honestly, I think that all the best stuff about forgiveness, Dominic already said last week, but we have a part two scheduled. So I'm going to try to add a couple things. Uh, but if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go to our website and get that. It was incredibly challenging and helpful. I won't recap it. Uh, I want you to go get it. But there is one thing that Dominic used to sort of frame his sermon that bears repeating. And it's this idea that we get from scripture that forgiving those who have hurt or wronged or failed us can be really difficult. doesn't seem to be that easy to do in life. And Scripture corroborates this. You remember Dominic shared this with us from Luke 17. Jesus speaking says, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. In other words, Lord, really? You're you're calling us to that level of forgiveness? Lord, increase our faith. In their ears, this seemed like such an otherworldly, difficult thing to attain to, such a, a high standard to strive toward that in response to it, they said, Lord, help our faith. Increase our faith. And, you know, the the apostles would go on to do incredible things. They would see resurrections from the dead. They would heal people and cast out demons. They would see all sorts of miracles. They would see the gospel go forward and churches planted. They would see all these incredible things. And they seemed to just walk in them. But for this issue, this heart issue of forgiving others, their singular response was, you've got to help us, God. 
increase our faith. This is an otherworldly sort of thing. And I will confess, but I feel very much that way. For me, in my life, it seems like I don't struggle with anything more than forgiving people. In fact, my friends tell me, my family tell me that I'm a grudge holder. And so I am. They know me best. I can't deny it. I identify with the apostles here and saying this is a really difficult thing. And so as we've been looking at the last few weeks, I've done a lot of soul searching, a lot of thinking, praying, seeking the Lord. And I've discovered a few things. One, one is I, I realize, and I say this to my shame, I realize that most of the things that I'm deeply offended by and I'm having a difficult time forgiving are really, honestly, minor offenses. I mean, they just aren't big deals. They had to do with hurt pride, reputation, people thinking poorly or saying, but I mean, just, in the scale of humanity and our human suffering, it's like they don't even really register. And I'm embarrassed to say that because I know in a room like this, there is some real pain. There's been some real horrific things that have happened to many of us in this room. And we can't speak about forgiveness of those deep things tacitly. They're big, big things. I realize that many of the things that I've struggled with the last few years have been minor offenses. Especially in the way that Jesus frames it here, in light of what I've been forgiven. I mean, that's kind of the main point that he's trying to get across here is listen, think about the great debt that you have been forgiven and let that free you to forgive others the little debts they owe you. The monetary values given to us there, we don't, we don't know what they mean, but the one that the, the, the initial slave owed was in the millions and millions. It's a big number. And the other one was hundreds, maybe thousands, small number. I realize that in light of what I have been forgiven, the things that I struggle with are not much. And Jesus is illustrating that very point in this parable. It is a parable. It's not a real story. It's a hypothetical story that he made up to illustrate a point in response to what Peter said and offering seven times as a good number to forgive people. And what Jesus is doing here in the, math, in, in the book of Matthew is telling us what the kingdom is like. And that's how he frames the parable. He says in verse 23, For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, or the kingdom is like. And the whole thing that we're getting from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew is that the kingdom is meant to be like the king. The kingdom is meant to be a reflection of the king. And we who have put our faith in Jesus Christ have been brought into the kingdom. And now the way that we live in the kingdom is by endeavoring by grace and the power of the Holy Spirit and the transforming work of the word to be like Jesus. That's what the parable is getting at. And, And the king is represented in verse 27. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. 
There's the representative character of God, of Christ in the story. He felt compassion. He released him and forgave him. So the way that the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer, and this text is framing forgiveness for us is that forgiveness is the right thing to do because when we forgive, we're being like God in whose image we were made. And through faith in Jesus Christ, in whose image we are being remade as new creations. And the goal of it all is to be an apprentice of Jesus, to to be like God. This was not new news to these. The, The Old Testament, we find God repeatedly saying, you shall be holy for I am holy. My people shall be holy for I am holy. The way that I am, God says to his people, is the way that you ought to be. And so forgiveness is being like God, compassionate, merciful, extending release, forgiving the debt. So I've realized, I'm going to preach to myself for a moment now, that to withhold forgiveness from people, if to forgive people is to be like God, to withhold forgiveness from people is to be like the devil. To be devilish. That's why when the master confronted the slave, he called him the wicked slave. Strong word. He said, you wicked slave. And you can almost feel in the parable the sense of evil. I mean, I think there's a real sense of evil sitting behind what the slave is doing. I mean, the differing size of the debts. Right, that he owed his master this enormous, it's an unfathomable debt for most of us. We can never even think about it. He was going to be sold. His children were going to be sold. His wife was going to be taken from him. He was going to lose everything. Everything. And he begged his master. And his master released him of the debt, the whole thing. This enormous debt. And then he goes out and he's owed a few hundred bucks by someone else and he begins to choke him. You can sense the, 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 the true, true sort of evil that sits behind that. That he had just been released this enormous debt and he goes and finds his friend who owes him a little and he begins to choke him. And then... You can sense the wickedness and, and the blindness. Unforgiveness has a blinding effect in my life, in our lives. You could sense the wickedness and the blindness that was upon him. The, the, the irony that he, the guy asking him for forgiveness used the exact same words that he used when he got forgiveness from his master. Did you catch that? In verse 26, he said to his master, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And then the other guy comes to him and says, Have patience with me and I'll repay you everything. The exact same words. But the irony of that was lost on him, the blinding effects of unforgiveness. And then we sense the evil at work here in his perverted sense of justice. So much of our unforgiveness has to do with a perverted or lesser sense of justice. Verse 30, it says, He was unwilling, however, but went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he owed. Choked him, threw him in prison. There, 
You owe me a few hundred bucks. Go sit in prison. The perv- it, it, w- it, w- it didn't even work. Right? If you put the guy in prison, he can't work to pay you back what he owed you. His perverted sense of justice and longing for some sort of punishment. I find that when I withhold forgiveness from people, when I hold a grudge, I'm doing it because I want to punish them. A perverted sense of justice. It's perverted in the sense that justice belongs to God. God is the one to whom we will give an answer. And it's perverted in the sense that it doesn't even work. He threw that slave in jail and then he ended up being the one that was sent to the torturers and imprisoned. You see, when we try to imprison others in our own unforgiveness and our grudges, we ourselves become the imprisoned. We ourselves, the text says, in some way become tortured. His perverted sense of justice, my perverted sense of justice. And then you sense the evil disconnect and his lack of gratitude his lack of joy that he had been forgiven and the lack of any meaningful change or transformation in him in light of it. Verse 32, then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you asked me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? I mean, we're... we're, we're astounded by the lack of gratitude. Wouldn't it just basic gratitude cause him to say, yeah, I've been forgiven so much, I should at least. Why is it doesn't it do that in my heart? Shouldn't there have been this sense of joy? I was losing my kids. I was going to lose my wife. All was lost for me. And I was released. Shouldn't have there been like a hooray, hurrah dance that when he saw the guy that owed him a few hundred bucks, he's like, hey, bro, you're good to go. No worries. Praise God, I've been released. I'm ashamed of my similarities to the wicked slave. And in realizing that in refusing to forgive others, I'm refusing to obey Jesus. I'm refusing to be like Jesus. And forgiveness is one of those areas for which there's not even a question. There's no gray area. I just spent a week with a bunch of pastors and theologians, and they just want to talk about all the nuances and all these things. And, well, what does that really mean about our sexuality? And what does that really mean about culture? And Christians love gray areas because tithing, I mean, does that really mean 10% in the New Testament? Do we really, we love to talk about all these gray areas. No gray area in forgiveness, It's like black and white what God is calling us to do. It's throughout the scriptures. I like the way it's phrased in Ephesians. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, in this way, because, be imitators of God. Remember, the whole thing is that the the wicked slave should have been like his master. 
we should be like God, be imitators of God. As beloved children, we're not even slaves. We're beloved daughters and sons. As beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Doing the right thing when it comes to forgiveness isn't even a question, and yet I struggle with it so greatly. And I find, like you find, that this disobedience in my life has consequences. Disobedience always has, excuse my microphone, disobedience always has consequences. Thank you, God, that Christ on the cross took the eternal consequences from us that we might have glory forever in heaven. But disobedience still has consequences in the here and now. I mean, doesn't it? Listen, God loves us too much to not let there be consequences to our disobedience. You know a parent loves a child when they're like quick to chasten when they're quick to discipline their child, the, the, the parent just turns a blind eye and lets the kid do whatever they want. That's not love. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And so God will see to it that though the eternal consequences of our sin may be forgiven and removed in Christ, there are always temporal consequences to disobedience. And we could say in a broad sort of way that what disobedience, and namely now, unforgiveness brings into my life into our lives is a sort of withering effect. A withering effect. We, we were meant by God to flourish. We were placed by God in the garden to flourish before him and with him. And when sin entered in, humanity begins to wither. And disobedience always has a withering effect in our lives. And maybe unforgiveness more so than most. Maybe bitterness and grudges has this withering effect in us more so than most. It's one of those things that we can feel in us because why? We play it over and over in our minds. Well, she said this, therefore, and he said this, oh, I should have said that. Well, if they only knew this, we play these things over and over in our mind. And it has this rotting effect in us. I find myself up at myself, myself. A little too revealing there. <laughs> Somewhat true. I find myself up at night thinking about these things, crucifying people over and over. This has a withering effect in me and on my life. Like David the psalmist spoke of in Psalm 32. He said, when I kept silent about my sin, why didn't confess it, why didn't deal with it? My body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. There's the disciplining hand of the Lord, the love of the Lord. My vitality, literally in the Hebrew, life juices, was drained away as with the fever heat of the summer. Withering language. He says, when I clung on to that sin, when I refused to let that go and do what God was calling me to do, there became this wasting effect in my life, this withering. And of all my many sins, many sins, I find my unforgiveness, my bitterness, and my grudges to have the greatest withering effect in me. But the text is telling us that with obedience comes blessing. With obedience comes blessing. 
and flourishing. If in disobedience there's a withering effect in our life, in obedience there is a flourishing that comes into our life. Obedience is a return to what God intended for us. Look at what it says in Isaiah 48. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is good for you. Pause right there. That's important for us to hear. He's teaching us what is good for us. Because what we often think is that God is some sort of cosmic killjoy. And he wants to teach us how not to have fun. Or he wants to teach us how not to get even. He wants to teach all these things. We frame it in all these different ways. But God says, I'm your father. I'm your redeemer. And I teach you what is good for you. And leads you along the paths you should follow. Oh, that you had listened to my commands. Then you would have had peace like a gentle river and righteousness rolling over you like waves in the sea. Listen to that language. Anyone longing for that? Peace flowing like a gentle river? I find that when I'm refusing to extend forgiveness, when I'm holding grudges, when I let a root of bitterness spring up, that I have anything but peace like a gentle flowing river. There's turmoil there. There's a storm raging there. And it tortures me, like the text says, in some way, in my unforgiveness, I've been handed over to a torturer, being tormented by these things. And God says, I'm I'm telling you the way to go. If you listen to me on this, your peace will be like a gentle river and righteousness rolling over you like the waves in the sea. Clearly, God was a surfer. Only surfers enjoy waves rolling over, with, on them. Might not sound good to your ears, but those are good things. Righteousness washing over you is the imagery. Righteousness and peace in our lives. In obedience, we flourish. In disobedience, we wither. And I think especially in refusing to forgive. I mean, this may be a way that we think about verse 34. And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturer until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. I don't think this means we go to hell. I think this is a confrontation, a very clear communication of the fact that unforgiveness becomes for us torture and a real punishment. And what we meant to do was torture and punish the other person. That's what I'm wanting to do when I withhold forgiveness. I'm doing that because I want them to feel the pain. I want them to hurt from it. I want to get even in some way. I want them to feel those things. And I find that in my wanting to do that, I end up the one in pain and tortured and imprisoned. Jesus is bringing us something better in the kingdom. In the kingdom, the old things have passed away, all things have become brand new. 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old things have passed away, all things have become new. And a lot of these issues of forgiveness are issues of the past. They've shaped us, they've formed us, they create the way that we feel or think. But when we are born again through faith in Jesus Christ and we become new creations, the glorious truth is we no longer have to be ruled by our past. 
what we failed to do, what we did do, and what was done to us. And God in Christ is bringing us into a new future and a glorious present. But part of that present and that future involves releasing others from their debt against us. And that God says, this is for our good. This is for our healing. This is for our flourishing. This releases us. Remember last week, Dominic said that that forgiveness is primarily about us, not the other person. And we're the ones that get set free when we forgive. And Christ in this parable is saying, here is a way of flourishing and freedom. Forgiveness. So then I've been asking myself this week, then why do I live like the wicked slave? If this is the way, why do I live like the wicked slave? Why is forgiving others so hard? I came up with a few reasons why it seems to be hard for me. And maybe these will resonate with you, maybe won't. Maybe they won't. Forgiving is hard for me because I discovered this week I have an inflated view of myself. I'll talk around that in a moment. Secondly, I have an inaccurate view of others. And much to my shame, I've discovered this week that I have a hard time forgiving because I have a deflated view of Jesus. Let me speak to each of those for a moment. Forgiveness is hard for me because I have an inflated view of self. I've realized this week that I, I somehow think that I deserve something. I deserve better. I deserve more. How dare they do that to me? But in truth, before the holiness of God, I don't deserve anything. How could that wicked slave say he deserves something after what had been forgiven to him? How did he deserve the few hundred bucks owed to him? After he had his family and everything restored to him, why do we think that we deserve something? No, that's me. I think I deserve something. When I'm realizing before, holy God, I don't deserve anything. I'm not entitled to that. Some of you have had much deeper hurts and you did deserve much more as a human, as a woman, as a man, as a child, as someone created in the image of God with dignity, as someone whom God loves. You did deserve much more. But I've found that I think in my own life, I deserve too much. And so because I have this sense of entitlement and deserving, I have a hard time forgiving. And I realize that I have made myself the most offended party when in reality, God is always the most offended party. Whenever there is sin, God is the most offended party. I'm not holy. God is holy. Who am I? I don't deserve anything. So they sinned against me. I act like I'm the most offended party. You know what I'm doing in essence there? I'm putting myself on the throne as God. Acting like, how dare they? What an affront? How could they? All sin is sin against God. God is always the most offended party. So get off the throne. This isn't about you. And then what has also helped me and hurt me this week is to realize that no matter what people think about me, and most of my silly little dramas have to do with that, whatever they think about me, I'm actually worse than what they think. I'm actually worse than that. 
they might have this opinion on me or there might be this slander or there might be this dismissal or there might be this thing. But if they knew my heart, if they heard my thoughts, if they shadowed me when no one else was around, I'm actually much worse than they think. And I sin against others all the time. What, 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 what? I act like I'm without sin when I withhold that forgiveness. I sin against others all the time. I'm in need of forgiveness from people every single day. I have an inflated view of myself. That's why it's hard for me to forgive. I also have an incorrect view of others. By that I mean, among other things, I I care too much about what they think or I give too much power to what they have done. It matters to some degree, but as a Christian who's been saved by grace, I am meant to find my identity and my sense of self-worth in Jesus. And the opinion that is to matter most is that of Christ. And the thing that was done for me and to me is the love of God has been brought to me in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that for me should outweigh everything else that has ever been done to me. I give them and their actions too much power over me. And I do that because I have a deflated view of Jesus. So the things where you let people be big and God is small, it's supposed to be the opposite. God is big. God is big. To my shame, I have a deflated view of Jesus, meaning I think that I have a hard time forgiving people because I do not rest in God's love enough. His love is unfathomable. His love is never-ending. He's a fountain of love. And I think if I cultivated a sense of resting in his love more, his acceptance of me in Christ, then these things wouldn't rule me the way that they rule me. I wouldn't be tormented the way that I'm tormented because I think there is hope for humanity to find peace in the love of God in Christ. but I don't rest in his love enough. And I think when I'm not forgiving others, it's because I don't value God's forgiveness for me enough. I mean, right? Isn't that what's happening in the parable? The guy was forgiven this enormous debt and now he goes nutso for a few hundred bucks. We look at him and we say, you wicked slave, you did not value enough the forgiveness that was extended to you. And I realize that's what I'm doing. I haven't valued enough the forgiveness that's been brought to me in Jesus Christ. So I just need to think long and hard on the cross and my own sin that I've been forgiven of. It's like I've been forgiven and I act like I've now I've never done anything wrong and everyone else is wrong and they all owe me something. You wicked slave, Brett. I don't value enough the forgiveness that's been brought to me in Jesus Christ. All of my sins washed away white as snow, made righteous before him in him. And the other thing I don't value enough is God's forgiveness of the other, the person that I'm struggling with so much. God loves them. God bled for them. God forgave them. Jesus Christ bled on the cross for their sins, forgave him, removed him as far as the east is from the west, and I'm going to dig him up and hold him over their head? What right do I have to do that? 
What right do I have to endeavor to rob the blood of Christ of the forgiveness that he's extended to them? What what God has forgiven them, I'm going to hold against them? That's theological insanity. What am I doing? And I have found in my own heart that I struggle with this because I don't trust Jesus to judge righteously. I want to see them punished. I want to see them hurt. I want to see them feel the heat. And as Dominic spoke of last week, that means that when we refuse forgiveness, we're making ourselves the judge, the jury, and the executioner. God alone is judge. So if I'm doing that, I'm effectively saying, God, I don't trust you to deal with them or these issues. Now, I'll give lip service all day long. God is a righteous judge, but listen to me. What I do is what I believe, not what I say. I'm not trusting God to be just and to be good. And I'll confess to you, I used to believe this one more. I do not believe that God blesses obedience enough. Dominic spoke about this last week. We hold on to this thing. And God is saying, I have something better for you. Let it go. Let it go. God will always give us something better. God is always leading us in better things into a better place. I realize that I have a a difficulty trusting God that he's going to bless obedience. Enough that it's worth letting these things go. So I hold on to them. And if I believe that, then what I really believe then is that obedience is optional. It's black and white about forgiveness. If I wake up in the morning, I choose not to forgive someone, I'm saying obedience is optional for me. And the whole paradigm of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying, listen, you have been saved by grace through faith and not of works. But now that you're in the kingdom, pursue righteousness and live an obedient life to the king. Somewhere along the line, we have confused salvation by grace with freedom from God's standard. We think that because I'm saved by grace, that means now I don't have to obey. When in truth, we've been saved by grace and transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit so that we can now obey. We've been saved for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. Somehow we think, and we all think this to some degree, that obedience is optional. And when I wake up in the morning and go bed at night and refuse to let that go and continue to hold that grudge and not forgive that person, I am consciously disobeying Jesus. Somehow in my mind I've made that okay. I must think that obedience is optional. But Jesus is giving us a corrective here in Matthew and on the Sermon on the Mount. A corrective. Because when we do think about God's standard, when we do come to a situation and say, God, what would you have me do here? What's your standard here? We often aim too low. That was, that's what was happening with Peter in those opening verses. Right? When Peter came to the Lord and said, Lord, if my brother sins against me, how often should I forgive him? Now Listen. Peter thought he was being the man when he said seven. Because the Jewish writings of the day, the things that they often live by, they all said three. 
Three was a common religious consensus. Three times is enough, right? Three strikes are out. That's where we get that. Probably, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Three times. And Peter's like seeing the kingdom, seeing this new thing. Like Peter's coming in hot and heavy. He's going to keystone that thing, right? Double it, plus one. You in retail, you know that. You got that. He's going to key, he's like, okay. I guarantee Peter's attitude was like this. James, John, Andrew, watch this. <clears throat> Jesus. You know, he thought he was being the man. And Jesus says, Peter, you're aiming too low. You're misunderstanding the kingdom and what you're being brought into and what it's like to live life patterned after the king. I don't say to you seven times. I say seven times 70. And it didn't mean 490. Bro, that is 486. You are pushing it. Four more times. That's not what it means. It means that we are to forgive as we have been forgiven. God is showing us a way to freedom from torture and prison that happens in our lives because of unforgiveness. Healing can be a really long process from these things that we're speaking about. But the road always begins with forgiveness. And forgiveness itself can be a really long process. It can be something you do today and you wake up in the morning and you find that you need to do it again tomorrow. But God has invited us into the process. And God is intending to help us. The burden, the burden of other sins against us, we were never meant to carry it. And the pain that we hold on to through unforgiveness, we simply were not made for it. We've got to hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 11. When he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So at the beginning of this messy little sermon, I prayed for grace for all of us. Because I don't think it's an issue of understanding. That means I'm done. I don't think it's an issue of understanding the right thing to do. I think it's an issue of grace from God to do it. I was journaling this morning at 3 a.m. about these things. God, give me the grace, which means the enabling, the undeserved help to forgive you. I have to obey you, excuse me. I have built my own prison. I have chained myself to my own torturers. God, give me the grace to walk in freedom by forgiving others. And his throne is a throne of grace. And he has given us his Holy Spirit by which we can obey. God, thank you. I thank for your word to us today. Thank you for your grace and your mercy upon us.
Give us grace and mercy now, Lord, to um, bring before you our burdens and our pain that have to do with our unforgiveness and our bitterness. The heavy weight that we ourselves have piled on our shoulders. And Lord, some of us in, in, in a human way rightly so, what was done to us is so wrong. And yet you in your love are showing us the way out. You're showing us the way forward. And what you have done for us, Christ on the cross is even greater than what was done for us in the past, done to us in the past. So rescue us. Rescue us from these things. I, I need a rescuer. I need a power bigger than myself. You, Christ Jesus, our Redeemer, our Savior, the lover of our souls who gave himself for us, rescue us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.